Well, thank you very much uh, for the invitation. It's a great pleasure for me to be here in, um, in Oxford for this fascinating conference. I must say I may have got completely wrong because I will not speak about <laughs> freedom of expression and uh, privacy or only very, um, to a very limited extent. But since we have so many learned uh, professors and uh, practitioners speaking about it, I think I have also not much to add. I will say a few words in passing, but uh, given that uh, the panel is about transnational frameworks and what shape for transnational governments, uh, I thought I would speak about uh, this subject and uh, giving, introducing maybe a broader perspective. And um, to examine this context, the possible role that the Convention 108, which was drafted 30 years ago, can have. And um, the first question is, uh, of course, what are the challenges and also the objectives or purposes of, this, of uh, transnational governance? I think we heard a lot. Uh, I think the figures are quite telling. There are now 2.3 billion people who use the Internet. More people actually own mobile phones than toothbrushes. And every 80 seconds, 107 million emails are sent, 700 million searches are carried out, and 1,500 blogs are posted, and 70 new domains are registered. And with more than 700 million uh, people uh, registered, the Facebook population would make it actually to the third largest nation in the world. People go online for almost everything. It can be very serious political concerns. Uh, we've seen it in the Arab Spring, but it can be also purely private uh, and uh, very personal things that are done on the Internet. With all this, is uh, the age of privacy over? As said Mark Zuckerberg in his uh, famous webcast. In fact, he even made it to be invited by the G8 summit. Where he, uh, where he in fact uh, used this forum also to press his own policy agenda in the sense warning against the regulation of the internet. The G8 summit did not exactly conclude on his uh, side, but uh, I quote, encourage the development of common approaches regarding privacy, taking into account national legal frameworks based on fundamental rights and that protect personal data whilst allowing the legal transfer of data. And in fact, uh, I think the human rights matters probably more than ever before in the area of privacy. As we heard from my colleague uh, Thomas Terdik, uh, we have the right to data protection in the EU Charter, but we have it also in many national constitutions. And we have an increasing case law, and not only in Europe, but uh, worldwide on the subject. Just to mention, and here I come a bit, at least to the subject of freedom of expression, and uh, the European Court of Human Rights has held that the mere storage of personal data amounts to interference under Article 8. Unlike the uh, EU Charter, there is no specific data protection right, as you probably know, but there is Article 8, and the court has brought data protection under this provision. And so any interference has to be justified, has to be in accordance with the law and necessary in a democratic society. 
well, it's very important that the court has developed quite strict requirements, positive obligations that court, that uh, national authorities have to fulfill to comply with Article 8. Just to give two examples, uh, it needs not only legislation but also effective remedies. And just to give two examples, it's true the case law sometimes not so easy to find, uh, and sometimes also admissibility decisions can be interesting. So, for example, in Delia versus France, an admissibility decision, the court didn't find a violation, but uh, the applicant complained about retention of personal data under the Schengen information system. And the court stressed that uh, it was uh, there was no violation because the applicant had the opportunity to challenge effectively the proportionality <coughs> of the measures before various domestic bodies. And uh, in, in freedom of expression was very much in the center of a recent judgment from 5 May 2011, editorial board of Prevoye, Delo, and Steckel versus Ukraine where the court based not based on Article 10 of the Convention, freedom of expression, uh, he based the positive obligation to create an appropriate regulatory framework to ensure effective protection of journalists' freedom of expression on the Internet, which is quite innovative uh, judgment uh, in a country, one of the most recent countries that acceded to the Convention concerning Ukraine. Because there the applicants had been ordered to pay damages and to publish an apology for, uh, because they had published an anonymous text which was objectively defamatory and downloaded from the internet. But they had acknowledged all this in their editorial. So uh, it's clear that there are many human rights concerned in the area. And in fact, very often uh, we have competing rights, not only freedom of expression, I should stress, but also other rights come into this uh, area for it. And they have then to be reconciled, precisely being German myself as well, from Berlin. Uh, so I, I, it's this fascinating idea, difficult to translate into English, of a practice concordance that also Thomas referred to. And we have an example in Köpke versus Germany, a uh, decision from 2010, where in fact the applicant complained about video surveillance and the court in Strasbourg had to weigh the right to privacy of the uh, employee against the property rights of the company, of the employer. And uh, in fact, uh, so you may say, of course, all this is maybe too convenient for the marketplace, but I don't think so. It's, uh, I think you find the same constitutional rights also very well beyond Europe, in Latin America, and many national constitutions, uh, but also increasingly in Africa and Asia. And I don't think that all this will change also with the economy. I think governments and courts will not allow a lowering, a lowering of data protection standards. And citizens also have a legitimate expectation that their personal data is not abused. So what kind of transnational framework we need? Precisely, I think it needs to be human rights based. We need this to be normative because uh, we need 
some legal certainty and predictability in international relations. It needs to be truly international and cooperative, uh, but also multi-stakeholder in an area where technology, business, and the law are so interwoven, I think it is important not only to work with governments, what we traditionally do in the Council of Europe, but also to involve business, uh, the business sector, and of course, in this area, data protection authorities, but also civil society. This is a challenge for us. Uh, we have also to invent new tools, new ways to communicate, to involve the private sector, and, but we have already some examples uh, where this has been successfully done in the drafting of standard setting instruments. The last thing point is I think it has to be networked. Uh, we are living in a networked world. You probably know the book A New World Order by Anne-Marie Slaughter, which, which she already in 2004 said that global governance is no longer based on the nation state alone and the hierarchy of norms, but networking between individuals. And in fact, this is ever more important in a world which we are confronting both the globalization paradox, needing more government, but leaving it at global level, and the rising importance also of non-state actors. So what should be the purposes of any transnational uh, governance? I think uh, it's very important to ensure free flow of information while at the same time respecting privacy. Of course, we have to uh, provide a forum, a framework for mutual assistance, for maybe even mutual recognition in certain areas. Then what is very close to the heart of our American colleagues, interoperability of uh, regimes. We need a flexible framework and of course a framework that uh, can ensure innovation, which is the driving force of the internet, uh, has been the driving force for, for many years. What is now the uh, potential that the Convention 108 can bring in this area? It uh, has, uh, I think it has some of the advantages, some of uh, important potential that can be realized. And it is in particular the fact that it is based on universally applicable principles of data protection, that is its legally binding force, which corresponds to the need of an actual framework and legal certainty. The provisions are simple and technologically neutral. And then, very important, it has a cross-cutting scope of application. In fact, it was uh, quite innovative 30 years ago that it was made for the public and private sector at the same time. At the time it was said, the drafter said, uh, arguably did this because data flows are primarily carried out in the private sector. But I think 30 years later, this is even more true. When you look at Google or Facebook, I think also now data flows are much more intense in the private sector and transfer of transporter data flows uh, than in the public sector. And of course, it creates uh, a framework for multilateral cooperation. And when you look at the map of the world, you have currently about almost 90 countries in the world that have data protection laws. There are Practically half of them have ratified Convention 108. 
and uh, we are hoping very much that uh, the other countries that uh, have these protection laws, that they can also accede to the convention. It is an open convention. In fact, Uruguay has already been invited to, uh, to accede to the convention. And other Latin American countries are very interested, like Mexico, but also countries in Africa and uh, also Asia, Korea, for example, but also we have also established contacts with India. So, uh, the, uh, in fact, the process of uh, bringing the convention, promoting the convention as a global standard is dates back to 2005. That will be quite short of this. Many of you know the sequence of events. What is important is that uh, it was, in fact, uh, the Stockholm program of the European Union that referred to the convention as a possible global standard. A call that was taken up by the Council of Ministers uh, of Justice Conference in Istanbul and which led then to the invitation of, of Uruguay. And uh, the time, at the time, Uruguay is an interesting example because the country had applied at the time for adequacy under the EU law. And it is the main questions when you meet people around the world uh, working on data protection, the first question when they hear about Convention 108, they ask, so what's about the relationship with the EU adequacy regime? And I think there we need a clear reply. Europe has to be credible on a global scale. And it is a bit sometimes strange that they get uh, not always a clear reply on that. And we need this sub subject that we have to tackle now, the modernization process, to make it very clear the relationship between EU law, which very legitimately requires adequacy under its framework uh, for transfer of data to third countries, but to reconcile this with the Convention regime, Convention 108, which has the presumption that other parties under the Convention have a, at least uh, have, a, have implemented the basic principles of the Convention and also live up to their obligations. And in fact, uh, we need what is important, and this is what we tackle currently in the modernization process, is the fact that the Convention needs to have a stronger follow-up mechanism, that we in fact can evaluate the countries, both the countries that are parties already, but also the countries that want to join the Convention. And here it is important, of course, that we work very closely with the European Union precisely to ensure this coherence of, uh, of approach and of standards. I think we cannot simply allow us to be uh, not, not to have a clear message when you speak with countries uh, around the world. Maybe a weak point of the Convention was the Council of Europe never had really the means to promote it very much around the world. Um, we still have limited means, but uh, we have a created a very important synergy with another convention of the Council of Europe, which is the Cybercrime Convention. And uh, there we have a program which is active worldwide to promote accession to this convention. And now we have introduced, because of national governments and uh, law enforcement people around the world when they work on cybercrime, immediately the question comes up, well, what about privacy, what about data protection? Can you not also assist us 
in a standard capacity building in this area. So we have introduced, included now a component on data protection in this project on cybercrime. And we had a conference last week in Strasbourg uh, where there was a very interesting workshop on, on data protection aspects of the fight against cybercrime with participants from Korea, India, and uh, Costa Rica. I think what will be important in the modernization that we're doing is that we preserve this general and flexible pragmatic character of the convention. The comments by governments we receive go very much in this direction. For example, the UK government in its comments on the proposed amendment said that Convention 108 has been successful, and I quote, because it sets out a high-level and principled set of rules to underpin international data protection standards. It has proved to be precise enough to be effective without being unnecessarily prescriptive. This is a key strength of the Convention, and this flexibility must be maintained in the modernization process. And we have similar com comments from the US government that will also be in the meeting of the TPD next week, which will discuss these uh, amendments for example, on consent, they commented that uh, consent is very important as a basis for processing, but the convention should not aim to be over-prescriptive. And uh, because in the draft it introduced a bit following the EU, uh, that it should be freely given, explicit, specific, and informed. But the U.S. commented on that, that given that Convention 108 is designed to apply a wide variety of both public and private contexts, the United States suggests that the proposed provisions be shortened to the date subject has given this her consent. And the concept of freely given, explicit, specific, and informed, which are all important, but they should be rather left for the explanatory report to the Convention. Um, there we have to strike very careful balance. I think it will be not an easy exercise. Uh, we have to be very careful. On one end, of course, we have to be close, uh, coordinated with the European Union, but we must maintain something, a principle-based approach that is acceptable to other regions of the world. Because otherwise, this idea of convention bringing together different frameworks and acting as a forum uh, cannot be fulfilled. It's a balancing act, and it's not easy, but uh, I hope with the support of uh, other countries and participation, in particular from countries outside Europe, that we can uh, manage all that. Crucial will be the coherence with EU law, because I think we have to make progress in parallel. The, it is, we are not aiming at harmonization, of course, not that there's uh, legislation to be applied directly in the member states, but I think our convention very well complements uh, EU law in a sense that it exports a bit the European idea of data protection to the world. And if we can do this in a clever way, intelligent way, um, I think uh, it can only be beneficial not only for, for Europe, uh, but also for the world as a whole. With, uh, I I think with this, I, I maybe stop uh, with maybe questions. I think it will be, we'll have a very important meeting next week on the uh, modernization, which will not be the last meeting. Uh, but uh, I think it's very encouraging that we have comments from not 
only governments, as I mentioned, also from non-European governments like the US and Mexico and Australia, but also that uh, we have this uh, support from the member states, but also from industry there and uh, television and broadcasting corporations, not only from Europe, has, have participated. And so we have been able to create a real momentum but we can sustain this momentum only if we join forces. I think the Council of Europe is too small uh, to, to carry this on alone. That's why we count on support from the U European Union and also work together with the OECD. At the French State Union, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs>